You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to start reading in verse 23 of chapter 3. Um, so if you, uh, if you want, you can go back to verse 23. Um, but um, otherwise, I'll let you know when we hit Galatians chapter 4. And I'm going to read through verse 11 of chapter 4 just so that we have a sense for what's going on in the passage. All right, please give your attention to the Word of God. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And here's our verse. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, or Daddy, Father, So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months, seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, your words here, and we ask that you would now send your Holy Spirit to shine light upon these words and into our lives, that we would know who we are, that we would know who you are, what you have done for us, and all the wonderful gifts that you offer to us. I pray that you would 
cut through all of the things that distract us in life from seeing the world as it really is and seeing you for who you really are and how great you are. And I pray that you would uh, help us now uh, expand our vision of who you are, Heavenly Father, and your Son, and your Spirit, and all the grace and goodness that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me just put a timer on here so that I don't talk for hours. One of the most significant questions that we all seem to ask ourselves is, who, who am I? Some of us ask that question almost continually, whether we're aware of it or not, and we, we'll find different ways to answer that. Usually we'll answer that question by actually what other people say about us, um, the values that people place upon us, and sometimes people will say lots of good things about us, and sometimes people will say lots of bad things about us. Uh, and we use all sorts of ways to assess who we are and how valuable we are by our culture, our language, our ethnicity, our class, uh, how much money we ha make, our, our job, um, the things that we wear, um, the social groups that we belong to, all of these things uh, are things that we use to f or allow people to tell us who we are. Now, sometimes we'll kind of reject that and we'll say, well, I want to be my own person and I'll determine who I am. So it's like what I feel, what I think, um, those are the things that make me who I am. Um, but what's interesting is we always end up somehow turning back to whether we're accepted or received, right? Because as a human being, you just cannot live alone. You need other people, at least to some extent. And if they don't like the way you have defined yourself, then you're in trouble. So this question of who am I is a really, really significant one. And what we're going to look at in this passage uh, today is actually this question of who am I, I but, but before we can get to that question, we actually have to back up and ask, what has God done and who is God, primarily? So in this uh, Advent series, we're looking at the fact that God has visited us. And next week, you'll have to, you'll have to come back um, to find out who you are. But today, we're going to focus on who God is, because if we don't answer that question and who this person is that has visited us, we really can't answer the question, who am I, okay? So that's what I would like to do um, this morning. So um, I'd like to look at two things first. First is this phrase that says, born of a woman here in verse four. What, is, what does that mean? And then second, what does it mean that this person is God's son. And then finally look at how do these two things fit together. Born of a woman and God's son, 
going together, okay? So we'll look at these three things. Um, so born of a woman. If you pause and think about it for a moment, what on earth is Paul talking about? See, kind of like the bolts are coming loose a little bit because I'm pretty confident that if we do a quick survey of this room, everybody here was born of a woman. In fact, I feel even more confident that if we were to just go out and do a general survey of our population and you just all took turns you know, today asking whoever you randomly met if they were born of a woman, I feel confident that we'd come back somewhere near 100%. And I think we could continue the experiment for as many weeks as you would like. Born of a woman, what on earth is Paul talking about? And if you read the whole letter of Galatians, one of the things is it's a very intense letter. This is not like Paul is concerned about this group of Christians. This church is in crisis mode. So why is he wasting his time stating obvious things? Born of a woman. Well, so Paul isn't losing his mind. There's actually some significance to this statement, born of a woman. Because if you read through the larger portions of the Bible, God often signals that he's going to do something significant when he has to tell you about the birth story of somebody. Okay? That's pretty common. Something remarkable is going to happen because someone is born of a woman. So, just a few quick examples. Just before Jesus is born, if you read the Gospels, there's the remarkable birth of Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, who is born to a really, really old couple who couldn't have any kids. John the Baptist, okay? Or we could go back into the Old Testament, and you could look at David, who made a huge, huge sin, or a series of sins, where he uh, kills Uriah, then takes his wife, essentially rapes her, and, and then God is still going to show that he can work great reversals by the son that will come from what will be a rather terrible marriage situation. Solomon. Or we could go back further to the birth of Samson, or we could go back to the birth story even of Moses. And birth stories are significant. God is going to do something, but there's actually an even bigger, bigger one that actually goes all the way back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3. God makes a promise in Genesis chapter 3, right as humanity has hit the first, well, it's not even a speed bump, like it's the big train wreck of the Bible happens within two chapters. Chapter 3, humanity, everything was perfect, 
Everything was wonderful, and then we really blew it. And it's right in that moment that God says in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. There's this promise that there's going to be a kid. And what's interesting is God doesn't just say, I'm just going to put enmity between your kids in general and the serpent. But there's a particular kid. And so the rest of the Bible becomes, uh, where's Waldo looking for this kid? Who is this kid that's going to engage in a cosmic struggle and kill this slippery, conniving snake? And what's interesting about God's promise is he doesn't just say, he doesn't just predict that this kid's going to come, but that he's going to do it. God's going to make it happen. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And notice here in our passage in Galatians 4.4, it's the initiative of God. God is the one who sends this kid. Okay. So God is going to have this kid come, born of a woman, to engage in a cosmic struggle to fix how everything went wrong when humanity faltered, fell into sin and misery and damnation. However, it couldn't be just any kid. It had to be someone very special. And this is where we have to come to understand what on earth does it mean that God sends this son, his son. So it seems odd that Paul would say born of a woman, right? Very, very strange, but we've answered that. But there's something even kind of stranger. Because actually, before this kid is born, he's called a son. That's odd. Now, if we were to do a survey of the room, no one here could say that they were a son or a daughter before they were born. And by that, I mean even conceived. This person, being, existed before being born and was a son, had the identity of a son. Now, this phrase, son of God, which you may or may not have heard, is somewhat common in the Bible. Paul uses it 17 times to describe Jesus, son of God, God's son. And it points to the fact, actually, not to him being a human. That's the born of the woman part, right? But the Son of God points to the fact that he has a very special and unique relationship with God. And the fact implied that by God sending his Son, that God is a father. If you were to read some of Paul's other letters, you find out that this Son of God person, Paul, says, Paul prays to this Son of God person in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 9. 
He tells the church, other Christians, that they should call on this person, like call out, cry out for help to this person in 1 Corinthians 1-2, Romans 10-13. And there are even places where Paul calls this son of God person God. For example, Romans chapter 9, verse 5. Titus 2.13. And I'm sorry, I'm just throwing a bunch of these out here, but it would take us forever to just kind of go through them. So uh, if you get the chance, look at them uh, later. And this son is a very, very special son. Unlike any other son and unlike any other father-son relationship that you've ever seen. In John's gospel, John refers to this person, Jesus, as the only begotten, only begotten. He's the one-of-a-kind son of God. There's no one else like him. There's, there's no one else that you can really compare him to. He and God are closer than close. And just to give you a little taste for what this relationship was like, this relationship that existed before the son was born of a woman, let me read to you some snippets from John 17 where Jesus is talking with his father. One of the few glimpses that we get of Jesus talking with the father, and one of the things that Jesus does in this conversation is he recalls what things were like between him and the father before He was born of a woman. When Jesus had spoken these words, this is John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. This is eternal life that they Know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have given me to do. And now, Father, listen to this. Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Kind of bizarre, glory that you had given me before the world existed. The father lavished all his attention on the son, loved this son before everything was made. He continues on. Jesus says, I'm going to pray that they, all my disciples and all my followers may be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me. That they may become perfectly one. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, 
and I will continue to make it known that the love which, with which you have loved me may be in them. Before the world was created, the Father and the Son loved each other continually. Before the world was created, it was a giant love fest between the Father and the Son. Perfect unity. Never any disagreements. The Father constantly giving to the Son and the Son constantly giving love to the Father all the time. Christ's sonship is unique to himself. We could get into the nature of the Trinity here, which is really over all of our heads, but here's the thing. One God, three persons, and the way we distinguish the Father and the Son is by that unique relationship. What characterizes uniquely the Father within the Godhead is that He is a Father to the Son. And what uniquely characterizes the Son is that He is a Son to the Father. Like that is the essence, in one sense, of this dynamic relationship, the Father-Son relationship. Not quite like what we do is like... It's not like our human relationships. It's something mind-bogglingly unique, loving, caring relationship. And so, right, all of us born of women, all of us have parents, you know, and even in this room, even those who have the best relationships with their parents, there are ups and downs, right? Right? We're finite, right? Your parents can't be there 24-7 loving you. Sometimes they have to sleep. And so the love can only go for so long. But that's not the issue with the father and the son. All the time, all the time, the love is there. The unity is there, unbroken, uninterrupted. But even finitude... Even the fact that we're limited and we need to sleep, for example, right? We're also fallen. Our relationships with our parents are marred by things like selfishness, self-centeredness, anger, loss of tempers, perhaps not getting enough sleep, right? Can hinder the ability to love. But between the Father and the Son, before the world, the love was overabounding, continually, never running out, never getting to the place where you're thinking like, ooh, things might get tense here in a moment because the Father's been loving for who knows how long. No, there's never a point at which either of them are exhausted by their love and admiration and enjoyment of each other. Never. We, we, we can't really fathom such a relationship. They are in their very nature united. And the Father loves 
He loves this son. In fact, if you want to go through the New Testament and you want to see how much God cares, if you want to talk about almost every illustration Jesus gives to show how important he is, he'll talk about himself as the son of the father. Like that's Jesus' prized title. In the parable of the vineyard, for example, where Jesus is trying to tell the, the religious leaders of his day how they really are messing things up, he tells them about this guy who plants a vineyard and then sends messengers to re- retrieve the funds that should be his rightfully from those who are running the vineyard. And then, of course, these guys beat up these servants. Some of them they even kill. And the father is like, okay, I've had enough of this. Certainly, they will honor my son, right? That sonship should make these guys listen to me. So the audacity is to kill the son, okay? The son has a unique relationship with the father that no one else has. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer of Hebrews is like, this is amazing. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ perfectly represents and shows the Father to the world, and the Father loves him. And so here in our verse, we're told that God sent his Son. This language of sending is the language of commissioning. He has given his Son a mission, a purpose of going into the world. He has a job that the Son must complete. And the father could send anybody. He could send anybody who could accomplish this, but only one person can do this job. And that's one of the reasons why the father loves the son. The son alone can do the job that the father is going to commission him to. In Genesis, at the very beginning of the Bible, humanity, Adam and Eve, they had a job to do. They were to complete it and honor God. But didn't take them long, they blew it immediately. They fall. And it's then that God promises the woman, you're gonna have a kid that's gonna kill this snake. Now, here's the thing then, okay? So we have this son who's a son before he's born, and then twice we're told, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Two times, within the space of a few words, Paul emphasizes he was born. We've already seen the significance of being born of a woman in the sense that God is saying something amazing is going to happen. But even more so, he shares in our humanity this absolutely unique person is now coming and sharing something with us. 
Second, we're told he's born under the law. And if you jump back just a few verses to Galatians 3.23, we're told that we are under the law. He shares our condition, not just our humanity, but our condition of under the law. And he's commissioned somehow to address this situation, and unfortunately, we'll have to leave that for next week. Just a quick side note, though, as we think about what it means to be the church, that just as the Father sent the Son, the Son sends the church into the world. There's a parallel between the the Father sending the Son and the Son sending his people. So the things, in some ways, when we look to Jesus, this is where we start to get a sense for what we're supposed to be like as Christians, for those of us who follow Christ. So John 17, right in the middle of Jesus talking to his father, he says, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And Paul in another letter actually says to the church in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, which is to pick up on the exact same thing that Jesus was going to do. So this emphasis on human birth How does this drive home the significance of who this guy is? I printed on front and back, so I was kind of like, the next page didn't make any sense. (laughs) One of the things that this points to, this combination of the Son of God born of a woman, this combination not only points to that God is going to do something very amazing and very unique, not only does it point to the unique mission of this person, but it also points to an absolutely unique disposition, internal uh, motivation, heart attitude that is unique. Jesus is the divine son with an absolute unique relationship to the Father And guess what? He chose to take on this mission. He chose to become human. If you go back and you read the stories about the ancient gods from this time period, or even some of the ancient Greek philosophies, pretty much everybody is looking for the exit from planet Earth. Everybody. The gods don't want to do work. They don't want to sweat. In fact, if you read the stories, they make humans because gods hate working. They hate earth. They hate being, uh, they hate the suffering, the changing, the being bound here. The Greek philosophers are like, how do we get out of these bodies? So while everybody is rushing for the exit, the sun comes to earth. He has a unique makeup in that he goes the opposite direction that everybody else is going, which is kind of remarkable because when you read the Bible, you realize that the God of the Bible is absolutely pure and holy, and the world is not pure and holy anymore. 
after what humans did in Genesis 3, in betraying God, okay? God is in direct contrast to the sin, the fallen, misery, death that we face. And what was it in Genesis 3 that initially got everything going in the wrong direction, that ruined the whole situation? Well, it was this. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die if you take from that tree, right? If you eat it. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like God. He, he offered to them being like God. They were trying to take too much and they also thought God was a liar. But what brought sin, death, and judgment to us by them believing that lie, the son is going to reverse. Listen to this from Philippians. Christ Jesus was in the form of God. He had it. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So everybody is trying to get out the exit while the sun is coming in, right? He's coming in to reverse the fall by pursuing the opposite trajectory that the serpent offered to humanity at the beginning. And he already had it. He had the sonship. He was God. So he has a unique disposition that runs counter to what we are also inclined towards. We all want to be like God, and the Son gave it up for us. So, what is the significance now? Let's put the two things together. God's Son, born of a woman, what are, what's the payoff for us? At least a little bit of the payoff. So, we've, this is his identity, right? Almighty God, infinite and eternal, loving relationship with the Father, given this unique task by the Father, and he comes and he does it while no one else wants the job. The significance, I think, there's a few things. One is, first off, if you think and feel that God is far off, which at some point, almost all of us experience one way or another. If you look to Jesus, you'll realize that, that God is one who draws near. God is actually not far off. Christ has come, born of a woman, born under the law. He shares your humanity. He has shared your condition. And 
One of the things that the Son does is He reveals to us the Father. And one of the things that we see is that the Father also cares for you. Because the Father has nothing better to give than to give His Son, because He loves His Son. He loves His Son. In 1 John 4.10, we're actually told that the definition of love is this, not that we loved God, not that we were looking for Him, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The definition of love is the Father sending His Son, demonstrated in the Father sending His Son. Or, Romans 8, 31 and 32. What shall we say then? If God is for us, and how do we know that God is for us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? The Father cares for you. And the, the, the Father shows that He cares for you by sending His Son. One thing this should encourage us to do is pray. How will He not graciously give us all things? The Father cares for you. And the Son loves us and has made common cause with us. It's very easy in this life to feel like you are fighting your own fight for yourself. And if you feel like that, one thing is that it will not end well if you have to fight for yourself. Because we are too small. However, if the Son has made common cause with you, there is hope. Are you ashamed before God for the things that you've done, the things that you have said, the things that you have thought, the things that you have wanted to do? Listen to this about the Son from Hebrews chapter 4. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. The Son is there. And He cares and He actually delights. He delights to bring us to the Father. He loves the Father and he will bring us to the Father, which is getting into what you'll see next week. But one of the things that he says to the Father 
in John 17 is he says that I am praying for them. I'm praying for those who trust in me. He's looking out for you. So if you're wondering if God cares or if what does it look like to be close to God, the Father sending the Son is about as good as it gets. Showing the love of the Father and the love of the Son. But actually, there's one other thing. Drawing near to God The Son has drawn near by taking on our flesh, by taking on our task, by taking on everything that we struggle and suffer with. But listen to this. There's one other person in the Trinity. And in Galatians 4, 6, the Father not only sends the Son, but He's going to draw even closer because of the Son. Galatians 4, 6, God has sent His Spirit into our hearts. For those of us who maybe have grown up with Christianity, and that feels like a platitude, that you have the Holy Spirit. But if you think about the work of the Father and the Son, and now the Spirit, God is on a job, on a task to bring us really close. There is an extension of communion with God that is mind-blowingly good, that very few of us taste a lot of, but there's more of it. So the gospel, the good news that we think about when we think about Christmas, first and foremost, is not only what God has done for us, but it's based on who God is, the identity, the nature of God. It arises from who they are. And next week, we'll talk about who we are in light of of who Christ is. So there are some wonderful things here to actually think about this Christmas season. Who is God? Who is the Father? What has the Father done in giving His Son? What is the nature of that relationship? What are they like? And I just want to close with this verse. This is also from Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. One of the other places where Paul refers to Jesus as the Son. Okay? Like the Father, the Son loves us. Galatians 2.20, Paul, this is Paul's confession. I have been crucified with Christ It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live now in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Son loves you and gave himself for you. And he drew near to you. I'd like to close us in prayer and then we'll stand. Do we have the the creed? Uh, And then we'll recite the creed and then if uh, folks will come up and we can respond in song, will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your great love. And we thank you for how you have taken the initiative to rescue us by giving us your son. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, 
for coming to us in all of our sin and misery and all the hardships that we face. And rather than staying at a distance as so many want to do, you came near to us that you might bring us near to the Father who loved us. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, and I pray, Lord Jesus, that by your Spirit in our hearts, you would stir up greater faith and greater enjoyment in how good you are. Please help us. So much, so much in our lives tells us that you are not good. And I pray that you would be at work helping us to see your goodness. Help us, we pray, to taste and see this day that you are good. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. If you would stand now and together confess the faith that Christians have confessed for thousands of years, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all worlds, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We affirm one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to the life in the world to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.